If you'll remain seated this morning as we read, uh, but turn your attention with me to Genesis 41. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time, and behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing out of one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, and behold, after them will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. The food shall be reserved for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you this, there is none so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made, and he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphanath Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of, 
these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Anasath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all my hardships and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all the lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to do, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. The word of the Lord. Good morning again, and let me, uh, let me encourage you. That was a long scripture reading, and, uh, but I thought I'd say I'm proud of you for engaging the scriptures. I've been doing kind of an informal survey of the churches in the area by going onto websites and listening to sermons and surveying Sunday school offerings and listening to music. And one of the things that I found very surprising uh, is that uh, at some of the churches, uh, there is no scripture reading. Uh, the sermon just launches into a topic, and Scripture may come in piecemeal as it makes uh, the preacher's point. And, uh, and so that might feel like an, a terribly large amount of Scripture to read through, but let me encourage you that if our teaching isn't informed by Scripture, right, if the Bible isn't driving what we're learning, then we're really just uh, patting ourselves on the back and living in our own wisdom. So... So kudos to you, and uh, let's see what we can make of chapter 41 of Genesis. I grew up in a youth group uh, in upstate New York that was passionate about the game of sardines. Kind of ridiculously passionate. Uh, you received enormous bragging rights if you could go uh, without being found by anyone. Now, for those of you who don't know any, what I'm talking about, the game of sardines is where a couple of people go hide, and uh, when you find them, unlike hiding the seek, you hide with them. So as more and more people find uh, the location, it's harder and harder to remain quiet and, and not found. So again, the goal for us was, was to go 30 or 45 minutes, and then they would call you in because they were so frustrated that they couldn't find you. So a friend that I grew up with, his name was Wes, we took particular pride in trying to never be found. We were at a retreat. On a property in upstate New York, someone had lent their large cabin to the youth group. There was a ton of kids there, and we were sent out to hide. And there was an old kind of shack garage on the property. And so we said, that is the place uh, to go. Half the people will be too scared to go in and even look around. And so we headed there, and we decided that we would climb up into the rafters and kind of suspend ourselves there, and uh, no one would, would find us. 
So we get up into the rafters, and it isn't very long afterwards as we're moving up there that Wes uh, says, Ryan, I think I'm sitting on, and there's a, a, lar- a loud crack and a crash, and you just hear uh, things rattle down below on the floor of the garage. And in a quiet, somewhat hurt voice, uh, you hear the word styrofoam. And what had happened is all kinds of things were being stored in the rafters of the garage, including some long pieces of styrofoam. And Wes had land, decided to sit on what he thought was a board, uh, what felt like wood in the dark, uh, only to find himself lying on the bottom of the garage. Have you ever found yourself in that place? Trusting something that you thought was secure, something that you thought would, um, would carry you through the day, or, uh, you know, metaphorically support your weight, only to find that it didn't do that at all, that it broke and you crashed, and, and you might even be asking yourself afterwards, why did I trust that? Why did I find security in that? In chapter 41 of Genesis, uh, the author is presenting to us a competition between two, really two empires. One is the empire of Egypt, and the other is God's empire, God fulfilling his promises. So we have to look at the tension between those two empires and how even Joseph is torn between them as he must decide which he's going to trust and which serves him better. Now, when I talk about empire today, what I mean by that is really an empire is any structure of authority or promise that we might believe in or trust in. Right? So there's empires of entertainment, there's empires of politics, there's empires of culture. And uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that, but just think an empire can be anything in which you place your trust, right? Any structure of authority or promise in which you might put your trust. And uh, we have to ask ourselves, right, what do we really trust in? Is it the, uh, the promises of empires, earthly empires, or is it the promises of God and the one true kingdom? This is uh, what we're wrestling with this morning. And the first thing I want to point up to you is the falsehood of all other empires. Empires make big promises, but at the end of the day, they're powerless before the one true kingdom of God. Now, uh, to get us up to speed, if you remember, Joseph's been languishing in prison, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. He uh, had interpreted two dreams of prisoners. One was the cupbearer who was restored to his position. And uh, once the cupbearer left prison, he said he was going to remember Joseph, but he forgot about him. Joseph's language languished an additional two years in prison. And so Pharaoh has a dream, and at that dream, the cupbearer remembers, oh, I know a guy. Back in prison, there was a Hebrew who could interpret dreams. And this will cause Pharaoh to call uh, Joseph up from prison. And this is the story that we're reading. It begins with uh, Pharaoh's dream. Now, just so that we're on the same page, Pharaoh has what is uh, described in the text as very frightening to him, and with good reason. It begins by uh, seven good-looking cows are in the Nile, which is where cows in Egypt often sit to cool themselves in the heat of the day. They come over to munch on some reed grass. Everything's going well until after them come seven starving, frightening cows, and they eat the good plump cows. And at that, Pharaoh wakes up. He's scared, goes back to sleep. He has another dream. There's a stalk of corn, seven good ears, right, robust, are uh, consumed by seven sickly ears that grow and consume the seven uh, good ears. 
Well, in verse 8, it says that uh, uh, Pharaoh was troubled in spirit. And the language indicates that he, he had a sleepless night. He was so startled, and with good reason. Now, Egypt is the breadbasket of the ancient world. Egypt's economy uh, stands or falls with its production. Uh, Egypt is a very odd place in that uh, the right half is desert and the left half is desert, but down the middle is one of the most fertile valleys in the entire world. And so the Nile floods every year and floods the land around the Nile. And the ancient Egyptians uh, made great advancements in irrigation, learned how to harvest that water uh, to water their crops. And even in the Greco and Roman periods, uh, Egypt will be the food provider for those empires. And that's how they survive. So to, to have a dream that threatens the heart of the uh, economy of the Egyptian empire is serious business. So serious that what does fair do? He says, let's get, let's get the think tank in here. He calls all the wise men, all the magicians of Egypt together, and he says, here's my dream. Tell me what it's about. Uh, undoubtedly, they took a stab at it, or many stabs at it, but Pharaoh knows that none of them have uh, accurately interpreted the dream. And so, in a moment, the empire of Egypt is threatened. Now, Egypt is the greatest empire at the time. Pharaoh is the strongest person in uh, the entire world. There is no empire that is richer than Egypt. They have made uh, wild advancements in mathematics, irrigation, as I said. Uh, think of the pyramids. All right? This is a, a cutting-edge uh, empire that's leading the world. It would be something like living in America today, right? except it's even bigger and in some ways uh, stronger, more dominant. And you would think, why wouldn't you put your confidence in the Egyptian empire? Where is a safer place on earth to put your confidence? And yet, in one dream, God has felled the confidence of the empire. Right? He's rattled Pharaoh's cage uh, in a serious way because the dream says, I know what you stand upon and I can take it away from you. Well, we see that uh, empires, they're boasting of strength. Empires that claim to be strong and to offer protection and safety are at the end of the day a myth before the strength of God. Because in a moment it can be turned upside down. Which should cause us at least to reflect to some extent on the myths that we believe in. What myths do our empire tell us that we may buy into that affect our thinking in ways that aren't necessarily helpful in terms of our discipleship of following Jesus Christ. Well, one myth that we certainly uh, give some credence to is the notion that in America, anything is possible. You can go from rags to riches. If you work hard enough and are disciplined enough, that's the American dream. Do you know where this phrase originated? Rags to riches. Originates with Ben Franklin. Franklin was born in Boston and as a teenager was apprenticed to his brother uh, who was a printer. And so he learns the printing trade, but he runs away from home. In his teens, he goes to Philadelphia. He sets up his own printing press. Now in, the, in that day, uh, paper is made from used rags. And so he would uh, print advertisements that collected rags uh, and turn those rags then into paper. 
And uh, Franklin also got a license from the city of Philadelphia to print currency. So hence, rags to riches, right? Out of rags, Franklin is actually printing currency. Now Franklin would go on to write, write his autobiography, and in it he made a very big deal about the self-made man. You have the ability, the autonomy, you make good decisions, you work hard, really the sky is the limit. Now we'll put on hold for a moment that Franklin was unusually brilliant, right? Uh, he invents a stove, he invents bifocals, he invents the lightning rod, advances the understanding of electricity, opens the first public library, opens the first public hospital, and is one of the major contributors to the Declaration of Independence, right? Not a lightweight, right? But putting that aside, it's just, you know what? You, putting all my intellectual prowess aside, which is, a, is not really something that I've achieved but was born with, I've made myself, is the essence of his book. And Franklin had a very particular opinion about the poor. He said that the poor, uh, the, the less you do for the poor, the more you do for them. Right? Because if you get involved and offer them too much, they won't pull themselves up by their bootstraps. They won't advance themselves to the degree uh, that they have opportunity to. What's interesting about Franklin's story is uh, as much as he uh, highlights his own independence and achievement, he neglects to really ever mention his sister Jane. Uh, Jane didn't have as many options as Benjamin did. Jane was married off, uh, not out of choice, but in a, a marriage that was established at 15. She was married to a man that had mental illness uh, that two of their 12 children would inherit. Uh, he would die, uh, many of their children would die, but not necessarily before they had children. So Jane, a single woman, ends up caring for an enormous brood of children and living in poverty all of her days. She is incredibly industrious. She does laundry. She takes in borders. She makes soap. She does anything that she can to provide for her household, but she'll never know anything beyond poverty. Interestingly, she also cares for her ailing parents, also Benjamin's ailing parents, who he utterly ignores until they die. And then he decides to come and build a memorial to them, which is really just a testament to his own financial wealth. Right? We say, all right, Jane didn't have the same opportunity to advance as Benjamin did, both by uh, being born a woman rather than a man, right? Perhaps she didn't have the intellectual prowess of Benjamin. She ended up having to care for far more people. Benjamin, if I remember correctly, would never marry. And... Um, their lives get set on different courses. And are we really going to settle just for this notion that, well, it's Jane's fault. She didn't work hard enough. She wasn't industrious enough, right? You know, uh, today we measure things like this and uh, you, um, you don't have the chance that you would think you do to rise above wherever you happen to be born economically. Um, before I, I, I do the reveal of really the st statistically what your odds are, realize what an important part of the American story this has become. Right? Constantly we hear you, uh, the exhortation that you can, you can be anything that you want to. It is the American dream that you, cannot, that you will not be held back. You can aspire to anything. And it was astonishing the degree that it's played, uh, the role it's played in presidential elections. It seems now to pursue the presidency, you have to be the fulfillment or embodiment of this story, that I came from nothing and made myself into something great. We can go all the way back to Andrew Jackson, but if we were just to survey the 04 and 08 Olymp uh, elections, right, uh, Hillary Clinton would make much that her father was a maker of drapes. 
Trump would say that, uh, has said numerous times that he made his fortune out of nothing, uh, neglecting the millions of dollars he inherited from his father. Gephardt would uh, make much of his father being a milk truck driver. Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, much of his father being a mill worker. And of course, Obama, his father being a goat herder. Right? And, but where have they ended up? Through industry and hard work, through discipline, they've achieved. Now, in the 04 and 08 elections, some commentators thought this is just getting a little bit ridiculous. It's being laid on a bit thick, which, laid, which led Jonathan Stewart to do a bit on it, right? And he was interviewing Colbert, who was still on The Daily Show at the time. And uh, Jonathan Stewart asked Colbert, he says, don't you think this is being a little over the top, all of these individuals making so much of what little means they came from and how much they achieved. And Colbert says to uh, John Stewart, well, I don't know, John. I tend to sympathize with them. I uh, myself, myself am a proud son of a Virginia turd miner. And John Stewart goes, what? And Colbert goes, that's why I believe in the story of America, that I, the son of a turd miner, could one day leave those worthless hicks behind while still using their story to enhance my own credibility. <laughs> now that's great, and it's great for this reason. They're mocking right, a notion that we hold dear. Right? They're, they're trying to, to lay out in front, in front of everyone, we tell this story that isn't really true. And it's not true. Uh, I told you we measure things like this now. They're mocking what is a lie. The chance of you moving from the, the if, we, if we were to break the American economy into five income brackets, the chances of you moving from the fifth income bracket to the top income bracket is 7.5%, which means you have a 92.5% chance of not moving that significantly. And indeed, that's the story of uh, most people. You have a better chance of moving ahead from your lower income brackets in Canada, Australia, and Denmark. And yet we tell ourselves over and over again uh, for many reasons. One reason is that we love to say, we've achieved this, I've done it. Another reason is we often like to say, I'm not responsible for the poor because their situation is the result of their own choices. You see, almost all Languages of empire other than God's kingdom have this in common, that they will promote your independence and decrease your dependence upon God. Right? That's the story uh, that started in the garden. It's the story that characterizes the seed of the serpent. It's the story that empires offer to us all the time. You can be more stronger and more competent if you believe in my story and your dependence upon God will not be so significant and you will have life in, on that road. And these stories come at us from all directions, from all the empires that exist around us, and they compete, constantly compete for our attention and our, our trust. Right? We believe all kinds of lies, that this purchase will make me happy, that I will be less if I am unmarried or without children, that uh, the escape of the romance novel will give me peace. Empire after empire, offering promise after promise. But in our passage, we say that, see that there is one kingdom and one king, and his will is going to be meted out regardless of what the other empires do. Now, it's a little bit hard to see, and Joseph, the story of Joseph is funny that way. It's a very odd narrative in that in the course of Genesis, you have to realize in, in the story of Joseph, God is silent, 
It's the only story in Genesis where God is silent. And uh, there's no background narrative on Joseph. So in the rest of Genesis, you get all these little tidbits about Abraham or Noah or Isaac or Jacob thinking such and such or feeling this way after such and such happened. You never get that with Joseph. It's very peculiar. And you, as you're reading the narrative, which I hope you're doing, I, I find myself frustrated. Joseph, how did you feel when Potiphar's wife falsely accused you? How did you feel after languishing in prison? How did you feel after your brothers threw you in a pit? You don't get any of the psychology of Joseph, which is actually odd because you get uh, psychology of the other characters, of the other figures in the history of Genesis. And I'm not entirely sure why uh, that occurs. What's even more peculiar is Jacob's about to show back up in the story. As soon as he does, God speaks again. It's very odd. But what the author does give us is the notion that God is in control and is executing this, and Joseph is dependent upon God's providence in the midst of the story. Even after he's been up and down and up and down, he still is uh, placing his trust in one king and one kingdom. And you can see that in verse 16, right? Pharaoh says, I hear you can interpret dreams. Joseph says, no, God's the one that interprets dreams. The power is not in me. And in verse 28 or 25, excuse me, uh, he tells Pharaoh that God has revealed the dream. To the extent, he's given credit to God to the extent that in verse 38, Pharaoh commends him as possessing the spirit of his God. He recognizes that he's a mouthpiece uh, for Yahweh. And so in the midst of it, we see that Joseph, even after everything that's happened to him, I mean, talk about a guy who has reason not to put his trust in God. He continues to look to God and say, God is the one who is offering uh, who is leading the story. God is the one who's in, who has the power and the authority and is revealing things and is interpreting things. And yet, even as Joseph lives, acknowledging and respecting the providence of God, he will at the same time be beckoned back by empire. And this is the story of all of us, right? We confess God's providence. We seek to follow him faithfully. And yet, all the time, the language of empire would woo us. He said, come. Come lie with me. I will do you right. And this is exactly what Joseph experiences, right? So uh, after he makes this brilliant suggestion to Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh says, you're the guy. Who else has the spirit of God? Not only did you interpret the dream, you've told us what you need to do, so you're going to be the person who does it. In verses 42 and 43, you have a picture of Joseph being made the grand vizier of all of Egypt. It really is, quite literally, the person second in charge over the entire empire. Uh, no one is above him except for Pharaoh. He gets the signet ring, the authority of the kingdom. All are told to bow before him. But not only that, but what you need to see in this is Joseph is being made Egyptian. He's redressed as an Egyptian in the fine linens of Egyptian, which were famous. And he gets, it's not just a necklace, he gets the gold collar. Right? If you've been to a museum or seen pictures of ancient Egyptians, they wore these what seemed to be incredibly uncomfortable collars that would uh, go around their entire neck, not simply like a necklace. Um, he's being done up as an Egyptian. Not only that, he receives an Egyptian name, and he re receives an Egyptian wife from the priestess class. Right? He's married to an Egyptian priestess. What the author is saying is, is Joseph has been um, brought in by Egypt and is being made Egyptian. Now, I mentioned the other week, this is a big deal in, in Jewish theology particularly, 
because Joseph is a very, um, he's a very uh, confrontational, conflicting. Uh, I still can't find the word I was looking for. It's somewhere in the back of my head, but controversial. Thank you. Joseph is a very controversial figure, right? Because why he doesn't seem to be being faithful to Yahweh. He's dancing too much with the Egyptian empire. Now, I told you as well that when we get to the, uh, you get to Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, Joseph is mentioned there not for anything that occurs during his life, except at the end of his life, he wants his bones to be taken back to Canaan and buried with his fathers. Right? So you see here Joseph being beckoned by empire, come trust in, in Egypt, come find your life in Egypt, and Joseph will actually acknowledge this, this is kind of where he's at in the naming of his children. Right? He has two kids, and notice what he names them. The first one is Manasseh, which means to forget. And Joseph says, I'm naming this because God is allowing me to forget everything that's happened in my past, particularly all the hardship of my family. I'm putting it aside. And he names the next child uh, Ephraim, which means to be fruitful. But notice what he says. He says, I'm naming this because God has allowed me to be fruitful where? Here, in the land of my affliction. Okay, this is a big deal for two reasons, right? The first thing is that Joseph is saying, I want to forget my story. Well, who wrote that story? God's written every bit of it, right? God has made that story to be what it is. And if Joseph wants to separate himself from his story, he wants to separate himself from God's providence. And two, where does he want to find fruitfulness? In Egypt. That isn't what God has promised. God has promised fruitfulness, but it's going to happen with his family and in Canaan. And Joseph seems to be saying, you know what? I'm good with what's going on here. I've been down a long road. Things seem pretty nice right now. Let's just, I'll settle for fruitfulness in the land of my affliction rather than the fruitfulness that God has promised. He decides to find happiness and blessing and peace, not in God's promises, but in the wealth and comfort that he's experiencing in that given moment. You see but how empire, right, the lies of Egypt are beckoning. Joseph says, believe in me. Right? Be happy and satisfied with what you are offered here. Don't expect. Let's not think about those dreams in the past where your brothers bow down to you. Let's just move on. An empire beckons to you in the same way all the time. And to the degree that you would ignore your past, right? Are there aspects of your story that you hate, that you don't like to think about, that you would rather just leave in the background? Who wrote that story? God permitted every bit of that story. And you will never understand who you are, who you're called to be outside of engaging that story. Right? And where do you find blessing? Is it in the promises of God or is it somewhere else as it's offered in, in empire? Well, you know, what do I mean by that? Well, Jesus promises you rest in him. Do you find rest in him or do you find rest in something else? Right? Jesus promises that you will find purpose in him. Is your purpose in him or is it in your job? Is your purpose in him or is it in your kids? Jesus promises that you will find peace that passes understanding in him. Is that where you find peace or is your peace bound up in the safety and predictability of your life? 
To what degree are you investing in empire rather than investing in kingdom? This is the challenge for Joseph, and indeed it's the challenge for the people of God as it always moves forward. Now, interestingly, we're just left with Joseph kind of caught between two worlds. But God loves Joseph so much, and, and God's going to see his story to completion, right? I think if God didn't intervene, Joseph would be a very happy Egyptian and live out his days and never pursue his family in Canaan. He says, I'm good. I consider myself blessed to forget it. God says, that's not going to be the end of the story. So what does he do? He will send the brothers to Egypt so that story will go in the right direction and blessing won't be found in Egypt, right, apart from the family of God. And it, of course, will all be the story of them going back to the land of Canaan, which is the promised land. And so the question, you get to see Joseph's story and the beauty of God's unpredictability, but it's an encouragement to us to say, will we trust in empire or will we trust in kingdom? Now, as God issues forth that story, where will it end for Joseph? As he meets his brother, he weeps on their necks. It ends with tears of joy. Right? That is always the ending of the story of kingdom. The story of empire ends with tears, but it's not tears of joy. So we come to the table this morning. Don't be afraid of your past. And also be willing to find blessing in the one who would sacrifice himself for you rather than than in the empires that compete for your attention. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you this morning and thank you that you have loved us enough to be torn, to be broken, uh, to shed your blood. You are the one true king and there is one true kingdom against which nothing will stand and you will be solely victorious. So would you please forgive us for the ways in which we honor empires and are wooed by them and instead would you cause us to place all of our trust in your kingdom and to find our rest and our peace and our trust in you. We ask for your grace in this in Christ's name. Amen.